say, we're back in 1 Peter chapter 1 today. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to end the first chapter. We're going to move into 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're going to go from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, to chapter 2 and verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 is where we'll start. It says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That, through the, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we ask that our hearts and our minds would be open to what your Holy Spirit would have for us. May these words not be mine, but yours, and may each of us be focused on how the word of God can transform our lives to become the loving body of Christ that we're supposed to reflect to the world. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. The, um, so what is he talking about here in this passage? There's basically two ideas that we're going to look at today and how they align with Peter's thoughts. The first idea is love for fellow believers. And he wraps that up in a love for the word of God, a commitment to knowing God through the word of God. And, and so that's kind of what we're going to look at today as we look at this passage and how his flow of thought happens here. Now remember he, where he's come from in this. He's just gotten through talking about, he opened up the book of 1 Peter talking about our salvation and how great our salvation is. The fact that our salvation is greater than the prophets, is greater than the angels. And then he goes into talking about how what that salvation accomplishes in our life. And last week we looked at the fact that God expects, as the Lord works in our life, that our lives are to reflect more and more the holiness of God. And so he says, be holy as I am holy. Well, then he comes in and he keeps building on that same idea. And, and that's why he starts this verse today in verse 22. And he says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So he starts off with both of those ideas. Since you have an obedience to the truth. Now, what does that mean? That is, it, that's really talking about salvation. So he starts off by going all the way back to the beginning and saying, since you've been saved, since you have responded in obedience to the truth of the gospel. Um, we see that same idea in Romans chapter 15 and Romans 15, 18. It says, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In other words, Paul was saying in Romans, the fact that they were saved was shown by their obedience to respond to the gospel. And so for us, it's saying, as you've responded by obedience to the truth, to the gospel, to Jesus Christ, you've been saved. So since you've been saved, and then what happened next? You purified your souls. That was last week. We've been saved, then we've been purified. He started with the personal. You don't get saved because you were born to the right family. You don't get saved because you come to church or you're a part of a church. You get saved because you personally responded to Jesus Christ and his 
work in your life and the revelation through the gospel of Christ. Then you personally respond to Christ working in your life by becoming more and more holy in response to what he's doing in your life. And that was what we looked at last week. So that's the personal side, and that's how he starts this. Since that's going on in your life, now what does he say? Now he brings it into what we call the corporate, or the body of Christ. Because that that's not supposed to stay personal. It's supposed to mean that when we walk through these doors, when we're together with fellow believers, whether it's a church service, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's just you have friends at work that are Christians, and it's, it gives you a different relationship with them than it does with the non-Christian, because you've had those things happen to you, you've purified your souls for this reason, for a sincere love for the brethren. Fervently love one another, from the heart. And so everything is building up to this point where he says, the thing that sets you apart from the unbeliever is the love that you have for fellow believers. Now you would think that this would be easy, right? It's like, he's not telling you, now there are other commands where he says, love the world, love other people in the world, love, love the, the, the sinner, you know, that he, you know, he gives the story of the good Samaritan. Who's his neighbor? It's the person who doesn't know him. It's the person who's his enemy that turns out to be his neighbor. He gives us all of those, but here he says, love fellow Christians. And in a way, this becomes an even harder command because our Christians, you know, we think, oh, well, God's working on all of us. That that means that when I come to church, I should have a group of people that, man, we, we all think alike and we all act alike and we all like the same things and we're all going to get along great, right? No, we know that's not the truth. You still have people who we, none of us are perfect. We've all still, we're all still being worked on by God. So when we come to church, we don't perfectly reflect it and therefore you know, we do have people that maybe we clash with a little bit. We do have people that we don't get along with very well. We are going to have those issues that come up where we're not going to see things eye to eye because God, even when we read the Bible, we may not necessarily come down to the same exact understanding all the time. But what is his command? His command is have a sincere love for the brethren and love one another from the heart. And so, and so we're supposed to, despite our differences, in spite of maybe issues that arise in all of this, everything we do within the body of Christ is supposed to be done out of a heart of love for other people. Um, and if love is truly the goal of conversion, then, then loving from the heart is a natural follow-up. Now, what does it mean to love from the heart? Um, I think we get a better picture of loving from the heart by looking at really what love is. You know, we use love in a lot of different ways in our language. I love my cat, but I definitely don't love my cat the same way I love Bradley, my son. I don't love my son the same way I'd love my mom, who just happens to be here with me this morning. And I don't love my mom the same way I'm going to love my wife. So we use love in a whole lot of different ways. And I also love pizza, too, because it's really good. Um, So we use love in a whole lot of different ways. But when we think of love and what biblically love really means, we have to go back to Scripture and see what that, what that entails. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we have the clearest picture of what real love really is. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is, is where we find a description of love. And, and in verses 4 through 8, you've probably heard this read at many, many a, uh, a, um, 
and a wedding. And it says, 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, and does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. That is a pretty strong definition of something that we're supposed to show for someone else. You see, to most of us, unfortunately, we grow up with this idea that love is an emotion or love is just something we feel. Love is something we we fall into. And as a matter of fact, love is actually, um, according to the way Rick Warren describes it here, he says that it's the strongest possible desire to seek understanding and good for another person. And I I believe he's right about this. Love is the strongest possible desire to seek good for that person sitting in this building right here with you who knows Jesus Christ. It's the strongest possible desire for that person who knows Jesus Christ that maybe you don't get along with real well to desire their good even when maybe they're crotchety or they're difficult or you don't see eye to eye on the way things should be. We have a command to love one another, to love the brothers. Now, what, now how, does, how are we going to do this? Because this is a hard task. And it all goes back to remember last week that holiness doesn't come because I say I want to be holy and I have the strength to do it. But it comes when I submit myself as a little baby to God because I know I'm weak and I know I can't do it myself. And so he works through me. And it's the same way with love. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says this. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So just as with everything else, when we're called to do this honestly, supernatural act of loving other people that we, we totally seek their good, the only way we're going to be able to do it is through the Holy Spirit working in and through us to show that love to other people. And so, fortunately, it doesn't rely on me being in the best of moods or the other person saying the right thing to me or, uh, or the ability of all of us to see things exactly the same way. It relies on each of us having a relationship with the Holy Spirit where we say, Lord, work through me and help me to love people the way you do, even when my natural inclination may not be to do that. And so he, he, it's focused on the Holy Spirit as he works through us. Now, why is this important? Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, And he's telling them how people are going to know that they're a follower of Christ. He could have said a whole lot of things. He could have said, you're going to know you're a follower of Christ because all of you look the same and wear the same clothes. And you go out and you, you, you know, you, you, you maybe wear a little something on your lapel that says, I'm a believer. And so all of you look the same way. Or maybe he could have said, um, they're going to know you're my disciple because you come into a building on Sundays and you build a building and you, it looks cool and it has a steeple or something and you come into a building and you sit on chairs or maybe you sing a different song called a hymn and you do all this but instead when jesus told his disciples this is how people are going to know that you're my disciples in john chapter 13 and verse 35 
John 13, 35, Jesus told his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's not love for... Now, he does give commands to love everyone, but he specifically says... The thing that's going to show the world that there is a difference in the body of Christ and that Christ makes a difference within our lives is the fact that we love other believers. So when people walk in the doors of Valley Baptist Church, they should not get the same feeling they get if they go to a bar on Friday or Saturday night. They should find true and real love by coming to a group of believers who can reach out to them in that love. And if a person finds more acceptance and more grace and more forgiveness and more mercy by going out with a bunch of people and getting drunk than they do by coming through the doors of a church, then there is a huge problem. Fortunately, I'm just going to couch everything I say here by saying that every time me and Gunnar meet and we pray for this church, there's one thing that comes to our mind is that this is not a church like that at all, that we are a church of love. But as we go through this passage today is that we can always look at ourselves and say, how am I contributing to that spirit of love? And are there areas where I need to work on? Are there areas where as a body of Christ that we can be more focused on in order to better demonstrate the love to the people who come into the church? And so we've looked at what love is, the, the, how how expansive 1 Corinthians 13 really makes it, and the fact that that love is supposed to be what sets us apart as a body of Christ. It's not supposed to be that people can just look at a sign and go, oh, there's a church. They should know we're a church by walking through those doors. If there was no sign on it anywhere, and they walked in and they just felt how much they were loved and cared for and how much grace and mercy was shown to them. And so... The characteristic of a Christian community is enduring, committed love for one another. And then let me just caveat it with this, even in the face of persecution. Because remember what these people are going through now. Their lives aren't all cushy and happy. They're actually being per- facing persecution. It would get worse later on. But at, even at this point, some of them are fearing for their lives. So they're reading this message from Peter, and, and he's telling them, You know what? Even though these people may be trying to kill you, even though some of your neighbors and friends may actually have faced ridicule and public disgrace for their faith, you're supposed to love that person. Even though it means that maybe by loving them, you kind of throw yourself out there, make yourself look like one of them or like a bad guy or something else. Our love is supposed to overcome anything else that may be within the body of Christ even when it's not easy and even when we're undergoing persecution. It's easy when things get hard to start just focusing on me. And so when I come through the door, instead of looking and saying, how can I meet another person's needs today? How can I look at what other people are going through and see if I can pray for them or lift them up or spiritually be there for them? And instead, all I think about when I'm coming through is, man, my life's miserable. I got this going on. I got this going on. You know, and if I was going through what these people were going through, it'd be even harder. Easier to do that. But Peter says you're supposed to look around as the body of Christ and say, how can we look for the good for that person sitting beside me, for that person worshiping beside me, for that person who's going through similar circumstances as I am? So love is the characteristic of the Christian community. But then he he goes on from there, and now he wraps it up in the word of God. He says, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Now, 
Peter has had this same idea. Remember, Peter's going to repeat himself through here a lot because he wants to get the points across. And he, he's brought up this idea of the fact that our salvation did not come with something that's like silver or gold. That can just be, it's going to go away 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 1,000 years from now. He's done this going all the way back to verse 7 where he says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory. And he also did this last week where we looked at in verse 18 and 19 when he says, uh, For you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so twice now, and now for a third time, he said, your salvation was not given to you. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't pay for it with money. Money, I can burn a dollar bill. I can't burn my salvation. I can't do anything to earn my salvation because the only one who could earn it was Jesus Christ. And he was more precious than anything that I have to offer to God. And so he, he bases his argument on that. And he says, for you have not been born again of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. And then he explains what that seed is. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Now, um, when he says you've been born again through the word of God, what, what does he really mean there? Um, the seed is the word of God. It's the, but what, what is the word of God? How does that bring us to salvation? Romans Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 17 says this. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. At some point in time, when you responded to Jesus Christ, you had to hear the gospel. Now, maybe for you, it was you picked up a Bible at some point and you just started reading on your own and you read how much and you read verses like Romans 3.23, for all the sin and fall short of the glory of God. And you understood that I was, I'm a sinner and, and I can't do anything to save myself. And then you read John 3.16 and it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes him should not perish by everlasting life. And, and you read those verses and you said, you know, I do need to believe on God. In Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you placed your faith in Christ because you heard the gospel through the reading of the word of God. Or maybe you were sitting in a church service and you heard a pastor get up and talk about the talk from the word of God and explain that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you responded to that. Where did that message come from? It came from the word of God. Maybe it was a friend who told you the gospel. Where did he learn it? The word of God. Our salvation comes through the word of God because this is God's revelation of himself to us. It's the only way that we know who God is. Romans 1 talks about the fact that all of us are without, none of us are without blame for our sin because we all have nature as God revealing himself to us. But ultimately, Romans goes on to explain that truly the only way we actually know we can know a little bit about God through his nature, but in, we are left complete without excuse when we read God's word where he told us who he was. And he told us why he created us. He says, I created man, I created Adam and Eve to be absolutely perfect. They failed. And, and then he goes all the way through the Bible and it unfolds how God saves us, how he gives us new life and new birth and new creation. So we're left without excuse. So that's how the Bible, that's how the scripture 
can it, it, it said that this, we are born again through the Word of God. Now, it gives us two things there, though, about the Word of God. It says the Word of God gives life. How does the Word of God give me life? It's living because when you read the Word of God and you respond to the Word of God, what happens inside of you? You're given new birth. That's what he's talking about this whole time. You're regenerated. That's the word, for, the other word for this. You're given new birth. You're regenerated. You're made into a new person. What's our old person like? Originally, when we're in sin, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So originally, before Christ, we're all on our way to eternal death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death. But when we respond to the word of God... The word of God does something inside of us. It creates new life. That's why it's called new birth. We're not the same person we were. We're a completely different person. And as he's already pointed out, that new person looks different because God is creating holiness inside of us. And now he's saying the word of God is producing that life within us the more we respond to it. And then he also says it's enduring. Now, why does he say it's enduring? It's because the life that is produced is eternal. The Bible clearly says that when we are saved, it's for eternity. He didn't save you just to let you go a week from now or a month from now or six months from now or a year from now. The results that the word of God creates within our life won't even end at death. At death, we may die, we may go into the, we will die, we will go into the ground, and we'll eventually turn back to dust, but spiritually, we'll be living forever in heaven, and ultimately, even in Revelation, we're told there's even going to be a new body. So we don't even need the one that's in the ground, because there's going to be a new one, and we'll be a whole person worshiping God for all of eternity. And time and time again, we've seen this, that Peter constantly draws our focus back to the fact that our hope is not just for today. Our hope is in the fact that this world is not my home. It's only a temporary dwelling. And ultimately, our hope is in the fact that we're, he has a home prepared for us in heaven where we'll live for all of eternity. And so the word of God is producing this life within us, this eternal life that will last forever. And so he goes on, and and just like last week, we saw where he used a passage from the Old Testament to to, to kind of wrap up his point. Once again, he's doing that here. He goes into Isaiah, and did I fix it on here? No, I did not. Isaiah, that is not Isaiah 4. It's Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8 is the actual actual passage. Uh, But he says here in, in 1 Peter... In verses 24 and 25, he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of man. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, this passage is quoted from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. It's not Isaiah 4, like I actually got wrong this morning because I wrote it in my notes wrong and then transferred it up to the screen wrong. But... um, In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, what's going on in that passage is this. The Israelites are in captivity. They've they've failed God. They've had king after king that failed God. God sends them into captivity. They've been through a couple of different captivities with kings in charge of them. 
And, and, and the, if you've read the book of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah is actually pretty negative. I mean, it's like God is saying, hey, I'm going to destroy this king, and I'm going to destroy this king, and I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to destroy them because they've all failed me. They're all sinners, and none of them have lived up to what I've asked them to do. And so it's, it's kind of down, depressing to read the book. But then you get to Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40, here's his, the people of Israel. They've already been told, hey, you've sinned, you've failed. This is why you're in captivity. But then he gets to Isaiah chapter 40, and it starts with a message of hope. And, G, and, 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 and when you, by the time you get down to verses 6 through 8 in Isaiah, where it comes to this passage where it says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. What he's saying there is he's saying to the people of Israel, these kings that are ruling over you right now, these people that you think are in charge, that you have no power against, that it looks like you'll never get out from under their captivity. In my eyes, they're just like a piece of grass. They're just like a flower that, that, that uh, the flower of grass that withers and fades. And just like we sang this, this morning uh, about the fact that, um, uh, that, that we're so small in the eyes of God, but God knows every single one of us, the people who think they're big in the eyes of God, they're nothing more than a little flower. Now, I've got a few flowers in my yard, and, uh, um, you know, what's the longest a flower can last? My roses, they've lasted, I don't know, six, eight weeks, but now they're getting that, you know, because I really need to go out and cut them off and let them rebloom. They're actually kind of brown right now. They didn't last very long. You know, you get a couple of months worth of looking pretty out of them and then you need to cut them again to make them look good again. That's about how, that's how long those kings are in charge, who are in charge of Israel. That's how God looked at them. And he, he reminded the people of Israel, these, their, their power is is so temporary. It's like a, flower that shows up and then it's gone. And even then the flower that shows up on that piece of grass, the grass withers. If I wasn't out watering my grass right now, it would be very brown. Okay. We have one day of rain this week. It might look a little nicer this week, but most weeks in the summertime here in Southern California, you are not going to have green grass unless you're watering it all the time. Why? Because grass withers. It fades. It goes away. It's temporary. You let your yard go for a few, a few months here in Southern California, you'll see how temporary your yard can be. It'll turn into rock and sand and stone before you know it. He says to the people of Israel, those people that you're looking at, and you think that they have all the power and that you have no power and you've forgotten me, they're nothing but grass. And they're going to go away. And then he ends with that quote. He says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And his promise to the people of Israel back there in Isaiah 40 is that I haven't forgotten you. Those people that look like they're so powerful now that they think they're doing something and getting away with it, they're going to go away. But all those promises that I made, I'm going to restore you. And he goes on to say, I'm going to restore you to the land. I'm going to put you back in the promised land that I've given you. And you and you can and 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 don't ever begin to doubt me because the word of the Lord endures forever. Whatever promises I made are going to stay true. And so that's how Peter then comes and he puts his commentary on the passage and he ends verse 25 by saying, and this is the word that was preached to you. Basically, Peter was saying, just like all those promises to the Israelites were kept and God restored them back to the land. I mean, at that time, they're living in the land. Yes, they're under Roman rule, but they're back in the land. They have their own country. They have their own nation. God had restored them 
And he said, all those promises, God didn't just say that back in the Old Testament and not, not mean it. He says, that's the same word that I'm preaching to you today. And the same word that God said, you can trust me when I say this, is the same word that you learn salvation from and you respond to in your own life today. And so if you've responded by faith and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can trust it that he's not going to let you go, that you have a home in heaven for all of eternity, and that you can trust what God's word can do. And if it was strong enough to change your life and give you new life and new birth, then it'll be strong enough to change who you are on the inside and create this new person who's a person of holiness and a person of love for all of the saints. And that's how he continues his argument. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is that we can trust that God will fulfill his word in our lives, just as he promised to his people in the Old Testament. Just as God changes our lives to reflect his holiness, his word changes our lives to also reflect his love for all the saints. And that's where he he ends chapter 1. But he picks up chapter 2. Remember, these chapter divisions weren't there in the original. This is Peter just writing a long letter. So we come up into chapter 2, and he starts at verse 1, and he says, Therefore... Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. So obviously, we've already said a hundred times, if, it's, if you see the word therefore, you have to ask, why is it there? What's it there for? Well, he's continuing his line of thought here. He's already said you're saved, you're purified, you're called to love the saints with this pure love. And he says, now, be, so... Thinking about all of that, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now, why does he specifically list these things? Think about 1 Corinthians 13. Love is pure. Love is uh, patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't brag. Love doesn't, does, isn't arrogant. It doesn't take into account wrongs suffered. All of those things are directly against these things in verse 1. And if we as believers have these characteristics in our life, we cannot reflect the love of God. And so what, what are each of these things that he brings up here? The first one is malice. What is malice? He says, putting aside malice. Malice is a desire to hurt someone. You can do this through words Or you can do this through actions. But either way can be just as dangerous. It's someone literally seeking to tear someone else down and destroy them in the eyes of someone else. Um, If if we come into church, remember this is talking about how we treat other believers. And we see someone and we have a hatred towards them because that's truly what it is a hatred towards them that we would want to see that person harmed or injured or in some way bring that person down and 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 you know fortunately like i said this is not necessarily describing our church but i'm sure if you've been at all in churches you've probably seen some people who claim to know jesus christ who treat other people in this way unfortunately and so this is this goes directly against what it means to love someone with the love that Christ tells us to love them with. It's a desire to hurt someone through words or actions. Then he goes on and he talks about deceit. 
And this goes, this can go right along with it. If you're looking to hurt someone, you're probably, we, we will use any means to deceive them and catch them and get them to do, someone, do something wrong or take advantage of them or gain advantage over them. Literally, the word has the meaning of catching with bait. And so you're setting a trap for someone. You're trying to harm them by, by, by you know, when you set a trap, if you're hunting or something like that, you know, you're going to camouflage it. You're going to make the, the little animal, you know, pretend, you give it a piece of meat. Um, you know, how do you set a mouse trap? You bait it with something. You give it a piece of cheese so the rat thinks he's going to go get a nice big breakfast, big lunch, and snap, the, 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 the rat's gone. And that's the same way with deceit. We're trying to mislead someone into thinking something else so that we can capture them and trap them and gain an advantage over them. And, and Peter says, this is not have any part in the body of Christ. This is what I would think of as maybe playing political games in a church or trying to, uh, you know, um, elder boards and, and deacon boards and things like that that can't get along with each other and just try to manipulate others in, into, into, uh, in, into doing something that they want them to do. So malice, deceit. What's the next one here? It says, putting away malice, deceit, and hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, you've probably heard, you know, it comes from uh, words meaning basically having uh, being an actor, a hypocrite, um, desiring not to have your true self known. Part of being in a loving relationship with fellow believers is being honest about who you are and about what you're going through. There, at some point, love takes a little bit of um, openness and honesty with what you're going through. Now, do you have to share everything? No, not all of us are willing to kind of talk about everything, but we have to be willing to share with others who, what's really going on with our life and not try to hide behind a facade of spirituality that's fake and that's false. None of us are perfect. We all have problems. And being able to have an environment where we can share about the problems that we have, where we can talk about the temptations that we're, that we're having problems giving into, and where we can lovingly help people grow in their lives will help deal with hypocrisy. Whenever you have a relationship that's built on pretense and on lies about who we are as people, what's going to happen there? That trust level is going to go down. And when the trust goes down, you can't have a truly loving relationship. A husband and wife that don't trust each other are going to have real problems really desiring the best for the other person because you don't trust them. And so trust has to be there in the relationship for love to be there. And that's why he says hypocrisy cannot exist in a loving body of Christ. And he goes on and he says, an envy and all slander. What is envy? Envy is resentment towards another for things or status. Now, here's the truth of what it means to be in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is made up of people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. It's made up of people from all cultural backgrounds. It's made up of people who speak different languages that are all around the world. But when we meet together in the body of Christ, every one of us is equal before the cross. And so it doesn't matter that one person may be a millionaire and it doesn't matter that another person may be a thousandaire. It matters that in Jesus Christ, we're all equal. 
And if we can look at others in that light, then it takes a lot of the envy out because it's very easy, unfortunately, to come to church and you're working all week and you're trying to make money and take care of your family. You get to church and, you know, you park, you park your car and you're thinking, you know, I mean, I drive a 2004, something like that. I don't know. It works for me. And I park it and, and then, then the guy drives up in his 2014 Lexus. I don't, I don't think we have anybody here with that. So I'm just going to, yeah, I'd park beside the Lexus and I could be looking at it going, man, that is a nice, God, why, I, I deserve that car. I put in 60 hours this week. I deserve that car. And what happens? You're not focused on loving anyone at that point. You're focused on why God didn't take care of you and on your selfish desire to have more. And that tears down the love within the body of Christ. If we didn't have people of all different backgrounds and all different things, we would all have the exact same thing to offer to God. But instead, God in his, in his grand design has caused each of us to have our own gifts and our own talents. And maybe that guy who's good at making money is looking at you and going, man, I wish I had the kind of family they had. I wish I had the kind of, of ability uh, to, to sing that they do and worship God that they do. Each one of us is given our own gifts and our own talents, and God uses each of those in his own way to build up the body of Christ. And so envy and resentment towards others for their status or for their things has no place within the body of Christ. The governor or the president that comes to church is no better than the trash collector who's sitting right beside them. Because in the body of Christ, we are all equal before Jesus Christ. And then he ends with this word, slander. And many times, this can actually be the killer within a church body. Slander is disparaging others to make ourselves look better a lot of times. What is this? It goes to gossip. And, and too many times, we can, we can even turn a prayer time into a gossip time if we're not careful. Gossip can tear down the body of Christ faster than anything else. And we're commanded that slander cannot be a part of who we are. That we're supposed to talk lovingly and caringly about other people, and, and all of us have probably been guilty of it at one time or another, of, of, of talking of wrongly, wrongly or rightly, but negatively talking about other people and tearing them down behind their backs or in front of their face, or however it is, but causing that division within the body of Christ. Why are we told not to do this? Because love hopes all things, rejoices with the truth, and doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Every one of us will fail at some point. How would you like it if someone else took that failure and just told everybody every time you failed? That would be terrible. We're supposed to love others and care enough to not tear them down and not slander them. So what is he saying here? He's basically saying, therefore, since you've been born again by the word of God, now long for the word of God. If you begin your life with the word, you're supposed to sustain your life with the word. And what the word will do is take out those negative traits. As you grow closer to God through studying his word, through living his word, those negative traits go away. And what happens? First Corinthians 13 comes into play. And all of a sudden that malice, that hatred, that envy you feel towards others will be replaced with true and godly and biblical love for another person. 
It's really hard. What does Jesus say to do with our enemies? And hopefully we don't have enemies within the body of Christ, but maybe there's people that are hard to get along with. What does Jesus say to do with those people? He says, pray for them. Do good to them. Because what happens when you pray for someone? It becomes really hard to sit there and hate on them when you're praying for God's blessing on them. And so we're told that we're supposed to love others and put aside all of those negative traits. And he grounds this by continuing on in the word of God. And he says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The only thing that's going to change those desires, those those sinful negative desires, and turn them into pure and biblical love is going to be God's word working in our lives. And so he starts off and he goes back to his image of a baby. Remember last week I said that um, he, he talked about that in order to truly experience holiness in our lives, it has, we have to have the mindset of a child that says, I can't do this on my own. I need mommy. I need daddy to feed me. I need them to change me. I need them to do all this because we understand that we're helpless to be holy on our own. Well, he's going back to that same image here. And as, it's saying as newborn babies, as, as a baby who, who can't feed himself and needs to grow and needs that strength, there's, there's only one thing that baby can, needs and can use to really grow. You can't give a baby a steak. I, that baby doesn't have any teeth. And that meat only has like one, one thing in it, protein. Okay, maybe some fat. But it doesn't have a whole lot of the nutrients they need. But mother's milk and even formula and things like that, are created specifically to help a baby grow into a child and into an adult eventually. And so that milk is specially created by God to give that child the nutrients that it needs to grow up, and there's nothing else that will satisfy it. You can't give it Diet Coke, and you can't give it Mountain Dew. It has to have mother's milk. And so the, 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 the command there is, We're supposed to long for the pure milk of the word, just like that baby. Now, what you don't want to get confused here is if you've read any in Paul um, and in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Hebrews 5, um, Paul actually uses the term milk in a negative connotation. So he tells the first, the Corinthians at the Corinthian church, he tells them, I would want to give you the meat of the gospel, the meat of the word of God, but because you're a baby in Christ, I can only give you milk. So he's using it very negatively, but don't get confused here. Peter is using it very positively and in a completely different way. Um, and, and the only reason I bring that up is because that you, sometimes we want to see the analogies all the same in scripture. And this is, Paul uses it very differently than Peter does. Peter here is using it very positively. And he's saying, as a Christian, you don't ever want to get to the place where you think you're above needing the pure word of God to feed your soul. That ultimately you can't get through your day or through your week unless you have the strength of God working through your life through the word of God. You know, there's times in our lives where we can start getting so comfortable with, well, I've got this under control. Things are going pretty good and, and, and I can handle this. And yeah, I can stand up that temptation. And all of a sudden we start to think, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And all of a sudden you go a day, two days, three days, a week, maybe a month. And you haven't really pulled out the word of God. 
because you think you've got it all together and all of a sudden things start to fall apart. And it's because God's word is what sustains us. It's not ourself. It's not myself. It's not anything that we can do. It's completely about God. And he works on us through his word. And so we're commanded to keep desiring, keep longing for the pure milk of the word. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Each of us can continue to grow. You know what? This Bible, there's, I don't care how long you've been studying it. When you start reading it, God's going to show you something new. You could have read the passage 20 times and all of a sudden you'll be reading it and go, wow, God, you're convicting me of something new today. And I've read that passage before. Why didn't I see that before? Because the last time you read it, God was working on you about something else. Now he's working on you about something different. And so God's word is what we have to long for no matter how long we've been saved. John Piper describes the opposite of this desiring uh, the, the milk of God's word as spiritual fatalism. Basically, he describes it as the Christian that says, this is the best I'm ever going to be. You know, others can desire God in their lives, but this is the best I can get. And this is all I'm ever going to be. And 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 unfortunately, there are people like that that are like, well, I'm saved, but I I can't get any better. I've I've been living this way for 20 years, for 30 years. Nothing can change me. Guess what? God's word can change anybody. And you're never too old to desire the word of God. It's not, it's not an if thing for him. Peter didn't say, you know, perhaps you could start reading the word of God. Perhaps you could, you know, maybe, maybe start memorizing a little bit of the word of God or something like. He said, long for the word of God. Desire the word of God. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a maybe thing. It's a command. We're commanded to do it. And people that live day after day and year after year content to never have any passion for knowing and experiencing God are failing to follow this command. Because the more that you experience of God, the more you'll want to know him. That's why in Psalm 42, 1, the Bible says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. You know, I haven't seen a whole lot of deer pant, but I've seen dogs pant. It's because they're hot. It's because they know that the only thing that will satisfy them is put a bowl of water in front of them so they can satisfy that thirst. If you're out walking across the desert, I've done that a couple of times for short distances, and all you want, if you forget your water bottle, is a big cold glass of water. At that point in time, Diet Coke is not going to satisfy it. Cold water is the only thing that will work. And we're supposed to look at the word of God in the same way. We're supposed to look at our relationship with God in the same way. It's not something that we can put on the shelf from Monday through Saturday and just pick up on Sunday morning and and that's all we need of God in our life. The more that we learn about God, the more we'll want him. And that's why he ends this whole passage in verse 3 by saying, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Why does he end it that way? Because he knows that each experience with the Lord's kindness, remember tying it all back to beginning with salvation, leaves believers wanting more of Jesus Christ. 
You cannot go into God's Word and look at God's Word and have it change your life and change who you are and then just throw it back on the shelf and forget about it for months at a time or years at a time. Because if you truly see God and find God and have Him work in your life, then you're going to see Him working and want to see more and more and more of Him in your life every single day. That's why Psalm 34, 8 through 10 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there's no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. How do, we, how do we taste the Lord? We feed on His Word. We feed on the Word of God. As a believer, you can feed yourself on a lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of TV shows we can watch. There's a whole lot of music we can listen to. There's a whole lot of fun things we can do. But the only thing that's going to help us to grow in God and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, that's going to help us to become more holy and put aside those negative traits and put on the love that God desires us to have for the saints, is putting our life and grounding our life in the Word of God. Do you desire the Word of God? Because it will transform your life and it will create a community of people who live out Christ's desire that we who are his followers will show strangers here that we are strangers here on earth by the love that we have for other saints. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word creates within us a desire to know more of you. That by living our lives in accordance with your word and striving to know you better through it, that you can create a love within us for the saints that will demonstrate to the world that we are your people. That you have changed our lives, that you've given us a new birth and a new hope through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and in our body here at Valley Baptist Church. And we love you and give you all the praise and the glory for it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.